Hi, welcome to Relative Digressions. I'm Renner. I'm Flick. And today we are discussing the Fifth Doctor episode, The Visitation. We are visiting 1666 at the height of the Great Plague, where some colourful fishy pals and their robot friend Disco Stew are trying to wipe out the planet because they're stranded and scared, basically, right? Yeah, they're stranded and scared and fugitives, and they are trying to wipe out the population of the Earth in order that they can then rule the planet. So really, like, boilerplate Doctor Who alien villains. I don't think that's fair. We'll, we'll talk about my love of the Terraleptals. I think they've got more going on. So they are escaped fugitives from their society. Uh, they've come to Earth, but actually what they would quite like to do is wipe out the entire population and claim it for their own. And to this end, they are controlling the villagers in a small town in what in 300 years' time will be Heathrow, partially through mind control bracelets, but also through a robot that they dress up as the Grim Reaper. It's a sort of two-for-one thing. In some sense, this stuff doesn't matter. It's uh, I think that the, the thing you've got to... The key thing you've got to understand about this episode is that I would describe it as a, a jolly romp. It, it is. It's a, a yomp through the woods and lots of playing around in barns. There's a bit of catch and release. Always good. It's a bit sort of pseudo Robin Hood, Forest of Sherwood, kind of. There's a lot of things which look to me like very amateur LARP woods encounters where three people jump out of some trees dressed as bandits that's six minutes into the recording before the first LARP mention. <laughs> okay, so it turns out what the Terraleptals are planning to do is they have genetically enhanced the plague to devastate the population. I think the implication is the plague is already going on, but they're planning to make it a lot worse. And it's actually quite nicely set up at the beginning, where when the doctor's trying to work out where they are and he's asking about the plague, and their sort of pseudo-fourth companion mace says that the plague is worse in the countryside. And he says, like, you know, as you'd expect. And they say, why should that be? And he says, oh, well, there was a comet, and comets are always a potent of bad omens. And then the doctor says... Was it bad before that? And he says, oh, no, there wasn't any in the countryside before that. Which actually makes sense. Right. Because because specifically, this is the Great Plague of London. It Actually, in reality, people would have escaped the countryside. And so it is odd that there is plague in the countryside. But the villagers don't think it's odd because they saw this comet and they're like, oh, the comet bodes ill. Whereas, actually, what the comet bodes is pterileptals crashing to earth who are going to experiment on some rats i mean that that is quite ill i, I mean I'll, I'll be honest their, their definition their, their divination methods seem to work in the, if i lived in the doctor who universe and i saw something strange in the sky yeah, if you see a comet crashing to earth if you, you should assume that something bad is going to happen right because it's always a spaceship it's always a crashed spaceship <laughs> literally like do they have normal comets anyway uh, there's actually quite a nice cold open on the episode where we see a 17th century family uh, we get a little bit of detail about them you sort of feel like we know them the daughter i think of the family sees this comet falling and then subsequently the family is attacked and killed by a glam robot nice cold open and also like in modern who that would be your pre-credits and it would be normal yes but it's really quite unique for the time yeah exactly like essentially you could just take that opening scene cut it to the other side of the credits have the tardis scene open after the credits and it would feel exactly like a modern opening yeah, precisely so. Because when they get to the five doctors, they do a literal pre-credits where they rerun the one day I'll come back bit for um, the Dalek invasion. Indeed. So eventually we leave the pastoral idyll of future Heathrow, or rather where Heathrow will be in the future. We travel to London and a bakery where the Terraleptals have set up shop. 
the doctor and companions turn up to stop them. There is a tussle, like that word. There is what would be an action scene, except that you have three guys in chunky rubber fish suits and Matthew Waterhouse. In the struggle, the bakery gets set alight. This, in turn, undoes the pterileptals, and there is a quite horrific scene of the pterileptals' face blistering and bursting. They lob all of the anachronistic alien tech into their handy flaming building and go on their way, setting up the only thing that the story tends to be famous for amongst fandom, which is the final twist. Which is that they don't actually try to stop the fire. The companions go, well, shouldn't we be doing something about this fire? And the doctor says he has a sneaking suspicion they should let this fire run its course. And there's been a few hints to this, but we've finally confirmed that the fire is at Pudding Lane. And this is, in fact... The fire in the bakery that starts the Great Fire of London. You basically called this about ten minutes in, and I kept kind of trying to like misdirect you. I think the moment I knew was just before they reached the bakery, the doctor sort of shows them where it is on the map, and I was like, I'm fairly sure I know that's just over London Bridge, and that's where the monument is, the monument of the Great Fire of London, which is, of course, where the Pudding Lane Bakery was, and I was like... Hmm. If I was going to set a story in 1666, um, and then it all unfolded. So, yeah, it's almost not relevant to the story, but it's a nice thing the story does, if you see what I mean. As scripted, uh, as it happens, there's a scene in the TARDIS, they go on the way, and then it cuts to the science says putting away. As scripted, all of the TARDIS stuff would have been done in voiceover, and as the TARDIS dematerialised, the putting away scene would be behind it. And I actually wonder if... Stephen Moffat knew that and had it in mind when he did the ending to The Girl in the Fireplace, because that is exactly how the ending of Girl in the Fireplace works. Right. Yes, indeed. Indeed. I do like that ending. Doctor, shouldn't we have helped put out the fire? We are partially responsible. I have a sneaking suspicion this fire should be allowed to run its course. How do you mean? I'll explain someday. So, this is earlier than our previous excursions into Fifth Doctor territory. You're familiar with the Fifth Doctor and Tegan, but you haven't yet met Nyssa or Adric. And the Doctor here is also a different character because this was only Davison's second story and he is still building the character. He's a lot snippier. And uh, when did Tegan come on board? So all of the regulars are quite new here. Right. Adric joins halfway through Tom Baker's final season. Tegan and Nyssa join at the end of Tom Baker's final season. And then obviously Peter Davison joins at the start of this season because he's the Doctor. Um, This is the second story of the season recorded. It's not the second in running order. So the characters have been around longer than the actors have had experience of playing them. Right. That makes sense. Uh, and also when we see her in The Awakening Tegan is, is almost in a very different role here she's not in the TARDIS willingly she's just trying to get back to Heathrow in her time yeah and that's the arc for this entire season and the Doctor will keep trying to get her back to Heathrow and failing until the final episode of this season Time Flight then at the start of the next season she comes back but this time willingly to change that TARDIS dynamic a bit that, that's sort of an interesting uh, creative choice. However, I want to talk more about the new companions, Adric and Nyssa, or new to me, I mean. Yeah. So Nyssa 
is not a great companion. I don't think there's a lot to say about her here. I actually was trying to remember what she did in the episode, and I, I just couldn't. She mostly interior decorates her bedroom. Yeah. I quite like her TARDIS bedroom. It's sort of incongruous because she has to see sort of quite ornate furniture, but in like sort of standard TARDIS. Yeah, brightly white lit. Yeah. Yes. So Nissa is not a great companion, in my opinion. Some people love her. She was Peter Davison's favourite character to be paired with, but she never gets much to do. What's her deal, if you see what I mean? So I'm going to tell you her deal and you're going to be like, that's a fascinating character. What an interesting character. Right. All of this potential is utterly squandered, okay? Okay. So, Tom Baker's final season, which we talked about a little bit on the Leisure Hive. He goes to eSpace, he picks up Adric, he loses Romana. After eSpace, he is called to Traken by the Keeper of Traken in a story entitled The Keeper of Traken. Traken is a planet who get great power and enlightenment from the source. Somebody is tampering with the source. And they investigate the source. Along the way, the Doctor meets Tremus, who is a noble worthy of Traken, and his daughter, Nyssa, who is essentially a princess. Mm-hmm. Well, shock reveal, it's the Master. Right, so yes, yeah, so Tremus is, of course, famously played by Anthony Ainley, right? And indeed is Master backwards. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, not, not backwards, but yes. Although Tremas isn't actually himself the Master originally, right? No. So the story plays out. The Master is foiled. The source is saved. Everything is good. Blah, 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 blah. Happy ending. And then after the story is resolved, Tremas notices that there is a grandfather clock on Traken. He goes over to it and reaches out to it. The Master's soul comes out of the clock, takes possession of his body, mm-hmm. becomes the Anthony Ainley Master. So, so that body is technically not a Time Lord body? No, it's not. This is the point where the Master ceases to be a Time Lord. We'll talk about this more in The Deadly Assassin. Right. So Nyssa then turns up in the following story, Logopolis. She runs back into the Doctor. Her father is dead, and his body is being worn as a puppet by the Master. Then the Master, in the body of her dead father destroys Traken, leaving Nyssa as a homeless orphan who has nowhere to go but into the TARDIS. None of this will ever be explored. That is criminal. That is, <laughs> that is just, that is such a good setup. That is amazing. Yeah, and it, and it never comes up again. Nyssa will meet the Anthony Ainley Master again and not remark upon it. Ah, ah. Um, it's not how I would write that. But we don't see any of that here. Now, Adric, I will say that I like Adric. Not only do you like Adric, you didn't know that that was an uncommon opinion. No, I didn't. I knew that there was some fan buzz around him, but I didn't know his. I didn't know his positive or negative. I thought, oh, probably he's a quite liked companion. I didn't think he was a beloved companion, but I had no idea that, as you put it, he is one of the most hated companions. I think what I actually said is one of the most hated characters. Right, and I don't really understand why. Because I quite like the Doctor having a plucky, annoying child. <laughs> yeah, you might like it. Nobody <laughs> else did. Nobody else. 
<laughs> yeah, I like the dogs having a plucky young companion. Precocious um, boy child. Precocious boy child. Uh, well, you know, precocious children, standard sort of fantasy character. Last episode, you commented that the doctor often fit into quite a professorial role. Yes. Adric is the swatty child who makes the teacher's life a misery. That is correct. He is a swat. I mean, he has a, a gold star for mathematical excellence. Yeah, he felt like a, an interesting stock character in that sense. I think it doesn't help that good child actors are quite hard to... Yeah, Matthew Waterhouse did not endear himself to any of his co-stars. He um, considered himself to be a talented actor who understood the craft and at one point gave acting tips to Tom Baker. How old was he when he was playing this role? Oh, I don't know. Not old. 20. I would simply not give acting tips to Tom Baker when you were 20. So, like, he was Adric-like in real life. Right, I did wonder if there was a bit of that, and that is often the case actually with child or I say child actors, but like you know, he 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 feels younger. Yeah, I I assumed he was actually under eighteen, so he's not actually a child actor then. So I feel completely justified slightly dumping on him. <laughs> Bear in mind that at this point he's been in seven stories. People sometimes say that he was all right with Tom Baker. Because you had this thing of the professorial role, but in this case, the professor who took a favoured student under his wing. Right. But then when Davison comes along... He's like the supply teacher. Well, Adric is now in a TARDIS with Tegan, who doesn't want to be there, Nyssa, who is there because she's got nowhere else to go, and the Doctor, who, particularly at the beginning of his run, is specifically playing as a bit arsy and a bit fed up of his companions. Right. So you have precocious boy child with three people who basically don't want to have the time of day for him. Right, and it doesn't it doesn't give much room. I mean, as I say, I just I, I liked him in this. I can certainly see why he might not be liked by people, but I've gotta be honest, I liked him on this. Yeah, I mean I don't think this is his worst story. I think it helps that Jolly Romp is not a terrible place for that character. As usual, I've solicited some comments from the fandom. It was quite a polarising story, actually. I felt like it's a story that nobody ever talks about very much. It's a bit forgotten. So I assumed that the comments would be neither here nor there. But actually, people either loved it or hated it. Oh, OK. And one of the main reasons people hate it is that the TARDIS crew all feel like they don't want to be around each other. And it's constantly sort of snippy. It is a little bit... Mm. Mm. So our kinspace who, after the last time I quoted them a couple of episodes ago, I realised is a phonetic pun on Ark in Space, mentioned that the script here, as we've said, doesn't really give them a lot to do. Nyssa is rearranging her bedroom. Tegan is packing some boxes. Goes on to say they're shown up by the guest cast, Michael Robbins and Michael Melia, as Richard Mace and the Terrellepsal leader, who are absolutely eating up the scene. And it's not just the performances, but also the way they're written, including the Doctor here, who is unnecessarily sarky. So that then gets echoed by a lot of the other people who are not fans of the story. Doctor Q, who who wrote a fantastic lengthy review, I can't quote the whole of it, but they said that part of the problem here is that Richard Mace, the sort of surrogate companion for the story, is a better companion than actually Tegan or Adrigara's real companions. Yes, he's quite good. They mentioned that he could have been in the sort of Jamie McCrimmon mould, which would have been really good, actually. 
Yeah, I almost found myself wishing he'd gone with the Doctor. Yeah, I, I also had the exact same feeling. He's got a great backstory too. Right, yeah, yeah, out of work, actor. In the vein of Davison companions who kind of don't want to be there but have no option, he was, uh, we get the impression, quite talented thespian who was quite successful, but the plague has closed the theatres and he's been forced to turn to highway robbery to survive. He's not a badden by any means. Well, I mean, he probably has, like, pointed a gun at and stolen some money off some people. But not not out of greed or cruelty, but yeah. because he has no other option left to him. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if there's a moral there about not preserving the arts during a time of plague. But so you could definitely see Mace joining the TARDIS crew because his backstory, he has... Like a classic Davison backstory. Has he ever reappeared as like a, in a in an audio drama or anything? He hasn't. Now that Eric Sayward is specifically utilizing some of his old creations, I wouldn't be surprised if he picks Richard Mace up again, because mm-hmm. he created Richard Mace not for Doctor Who, but for a series of radio detective stories. Oh, that's quite interesting. Uh, actually, that might be a great place to segue onto. Sayward, who is the writer of this story. Yes, uh, good point. Uh, so Eric Sayward is the writer of this story, and he will go on to write, I think, quite a lot of what will follow of Who, and it's pretty important in Who's story. He won't write that much, but he will become the script editor and, and have a much bigger impact than he ever would have done as a writer, in fact. Mm-hmm. So we talked on the Leisure Hive about the beginning of a, a sea change in the show with the arrival of John Nathan Turner. That season has a unique flavour because it is script edited by Christopher Hamilton Bidmead, but Bidmead then departs and Sayward comes in. That J&T and Sayward pairing is a bit like the Terence Dix and Barry Letts pairing of its era, or the Hinchcliffe and Holmes. It's the producer and the script editor together often form the unit that really defines an era. Or like RTD and Julie Gardner. Maybe more like RTD and Phil Collinson, really. I really, I always think of it as being Julian Russell's sort of gig, in terms of like a pair of people who define the era. Yes, I don't know, Julie... I mean, I might be wrong on this, but my perception is that after RTD, the main creative input was Phil, whilst Julie was the one who enabled everything to actually get done. So I agree, but I I, I think it's important to realise the degree to which a good partnership can be about so much giving creative space. It doesn't need to be two people inputting into the creative process. And I would right. argue that Julie Gardner's mastery of commercialising and making Doctor Who work and licensing were a big part of why 2005 Who became the hit that it did. I don't think it would have necessarily become that if you had an executive producer that the BBC had imposed that Russell didn't gel with. I think so I think all that... of that is, I think, a very on-the-money comment. But the reason that John Nathan Turner and Eric Sayward shaped the show the way they did is because they hated each other. Right. Uh, I, I, I think possibly the, possibly the more general comment is that core relationship fundamentally shapes the show, whether or not it's two people singing in synergy, or in this case, two people who were not. I mean, it got worse over time. This is right at the beginning, and they were kind of still on the same page, but they would diverge over time, and the conflict between them would put an imprint on the show which would grow through the Davison era and then really culminate in the Colin disaster. (laughs) One very tangible way 
that JNT and Sayward's opinions would inform the show going forward that you see here is that they destroy the sonic screwdriver because neither of them really liked it. And it doesn't come back until the TV movie. Right, I think I read somewhere that they may, might have intended to bring it back. It, it, well, it was the case that Sayward didn't like it, thought it was too easy, so he wrote it out in this script, and then JNT was like, good, it's gone. I won't bring it back. Right. Drop the sonic device... Isn't my day, is it? I feel as though you've just killed an old friend. Sayward is notable for creating a specific kind of Doctor Who called Saywardianism, Mm -hmm. which is not so much on display here, but kind of the the grimdark period of Doctor Who. Right. He would oversee an era which was extremely violent Nobody wanted to be there, nobody was very happy, and all of the guest cast got killed every story. Fans, I mean, this this is quite a violent story in its own way. I mean, you know, the plague is relatively gruesome, and you've already said, actually, there's this really grim scene where the pterodactyls melt. Yes, but if this was full Sayward, then Mace would not have survived the plot by any means, and right. also hit, like his downturn in fortune would be played much more unpleasantly and he would probably have been far more antagonistic and like Eric Sayward oversaw an era where basically nobody is allowed to be happy right they're just his sort of pref- creative preferences and I like aspects of Saywardianism like this is my favorite era of the show I like a certain amount of spikiness I like the fact that Tegan doesn't particularly like being there and I actually find that quite interesting yes I like a lot of it it does go too far and it does eventually lead to as we discussed on Time Lash like the Colin era where everyone is just unpleasant all the time so Sayward appears here originally as just a writer pitching this script and it will eventually see him brought on board as the script editor and really complete the full transition into the JNT era that we looked at the beginning of back on the Leisure Hive. Right, and that that era will then last essentially until Sayward leaves after trial, is that right? Yeah, it'll last until McCoy, basically. Mm -hmm. But the other interesting thing about this script in particular is that Eric Sayward's idea of Doctor Who was predicated on five, ten years earlier. He he wasn't up to date on the show. Oh, that's interesting. So what he wrote was kind of his memory of a mid, early mid-70s Doctor Who. Right, interesting. So the show had evolved. And why that's relevant is that there had not been a historically set story for five years, but Eric Sayward didn't know that and wrote a pseudo-historical, and it led to the return of historicals to Doctor Who. Oh, that is very cool. By accident, essentially. Right, essentially he was just like, oh, well, they have historicals on Doctor Who, don't they? So, Eric Sayward, by both design and incident, massively shaped this era. In a counterfactual universe, we could be sitting here on a podcast talking about how the John Nathan Turner era was the culmination of a sea change where the show became conceptual sci-fi and stopped going back to Earth and history. Huh. Well, I'm quite glad we didn't, because I like this. Yeah, yeah, I mean, also, the show wouldn't have gone on this long. I think the historicals are an important story type in Doctor Who. And actually, as we noted, it's not simply... um, So in my head, there's almost three kinds of historicals. There's pure historicals. Mm -hmm. There's pseudo-historicals in the sense that this one is. 
But then there's ones which sort of just happen to be set in the past, but that isn't integral to the story. Right. Whereas this has fish, monsters, and robots, but also the fact that it's happening in 1666 is like super relevant both to the resolution, like that final twist, but also actually the presence of the plague in the first place. That's interesting. You have exactly the opposite opinion on this story that I do, which is this is a story that has absolutely nothing to do with its historical period. You've you've reached the diametrically opposite conclusion to me on this story. Uh, okay, but uh, moving away from the story specifically, do you see the trichotomy I'm trying to draw? Yes, I think also to that you can add the modern idea of the celebrity historical. Uh, yeah, okay, that is true. I like the Agatha Christie episode and things. Yeah, or the Shakespeare Code, what have you. Yeah. Where the period is less relevant than the person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To the point where I think you can have a celebrity historical that isn't historical, and I would point to H.G. Wells in Time Lash. Uh, yeah, good, good example. Do you, do you not think this is related to the time it's... Okay, so are you ready for my big thesis? Hit me. Okay. The Visitation is not a historical. Okay. Okay, now I, I will concede what you are saying, that the presence of the plague and the twist ending are specifically related to the time that it is happening. Like, the twist ending clearly is where the story idea came from. You can see that, but has nothing to actually do with the plot. Sure, agreed. Like, the fact that it's the start of the Great Fire of London doesn't actually make any difference to anything that happens in the story. Yeah, I, 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 I absolutely agree. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to set that aside and all sort of almost consider it on its own merits. So carry on. The presence of the plague, yeah, it runs throughout the whole story. But I would argue... If the Doctor had in fact landed on a different planet, he'd landed on a planet Heathrow by mistake in 17 billion and 22. 16 billion and 66. Yeah, exactly. And the planet Heathrow is beset by plague. You could play this exact plot out and the fact that they were in the future on an alien planet would not change a single plot detail. Okay. I will sort of concede that. I will say that the fact that it's tied to our history means you get certain things for free. You get an aesthetic, a sort of general historical sense. We as the audience have some preconceptions about this period in history which we can bring to bear. I think Richard Mace would be a much harder character to introduce outside of the historical context. Yes, okay, you could have a asteroid London in which all the cyber theatres have been closed, or, you know, fine. I think actually there's, a, there's an interesting side point here about things which are not historicals, which are historicals, if you see what I mean, but that are echoing history, even though they're not set in it. But I am I'm not entirely convinced. Or I think that... So, hang on, hang on. In, in regard to Mace, though, what makes him fun and compelling as a character is, you know, his backstory and blah, 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 blah. But in terms of the plot, he could be a completely different person and it wouldn't change anything. Well, I agree, but I don't think what makes a story... He a could, historical... in fact, be Turlow. He is Turlow. Okay, but I don't think what makes a story historical is the plot. It's, it's, it is as much, for me, about the aesthetic it's tapping into. Okay, so, yes. Now, I will agree the aesthetic of the story is entirely tied up with the fact that it was conceived to be set during the plague and leading to the Great Fire. That informs... The, the look of it and the style of it and the atmosphere of it. It's got this folk horror thing, a bit like The Awakening, with the robot appearing as the Reaper, which is grounded in that era. It is entirely garnished with 
a flavour based on being set in 1666. I agree. But the structural components to it are not, is what you're saying, are not actually a historical. Right. A Doctor Who historical, if you are writing the definition of a historical, the aesthetics of it are not part of that definition. So let's, let's return to my kind of trichotomy from before. So we have pure historical stories where there's no science fiction elements other than the fact that the Doctrine Companions turn up. Something like certainly Marco Polo, probably the Aztecs, although the Aztecs has this direct stuff about changing history, which I think is a complexity we might return to. Um, then you've got what I initially was categorizing the visitation of, which is a story which has science fiction elements like the Witchfinders, right? It has science fiction elements, but also the plot is tied up with the historical era and the plot almost doesn't work outside of that. And then I suppose you have a story where, yes, it's set in history, but actually if you dig into the story, it doesn't use any of the facts of that particular time period to structure the plot. It just is sort of set there and is using it for the aesthetic. And you could argue that celebrity historicals are kind of often... I think that you have to define them as their own thing. Yeah, I think they're their own thing, but I would argue sometimes they can like fall into any of these categories. But those are my kind of three main historical categories. So the Witchfinders is a good example, because on the surface you might be like, well, you could say the same about the Witchfinders, but if you went to another planet to do the Witchfinders, you'd have to import so much of the specifics that you'd go, hang on, this is just James's witch hunts on another planet. Right, a plague is generic enough that it can happen somewhere else, but actually that's pretty hard to do. Or a good example of this is your celebrity historical. You know, the Shakespeare code wouldn't make sense if it was like space Shakespeare. Right, and actually they do sometimes do this where they create a character who is an obvious intentional surrogate of a real person and it never quite works so we talked about the Aztecs and the point I want to make is that in this story despite the folklore the atmosphere the aesthetics the final reveal the fact that they are in history does not alter the context of any of their actions in the Aztecs Literally every inch of their activity is informed by the context of being in history. Yes. And actually, I think there are Doctor Who stories which are set in the future, but where the stories are informed by the context of being at a particular point in the future's history, if you see what I mean. Exactly. Like, there is such a thing as a future historical. Uh, a good example of this is the end of the world, I think. Right. Because that is set at a very specific historical moment which has not yet happened, which is the final end of the planet Earth. I don't... I, I agree, although I don't think that that's the most clear-cut example, but I do agree. What would be a better example? Well, I think there are some stories set in the future that play around with the whole it's a fixed point in time thing, but in the future. And the yes, that is that's definitely true. I just couldn't think of any per se. Um, there's that Capaldi... Is it the Flood? Before the Flood. That's set. Is that set in the future? Yeah, that that one's confusing though because that one involves him deliberately creating a bootstrap paradox. Yes. Uh, actually, that is a great example of something which is not a historical in 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 the same way that this is not a historical, and it doesn't matter that it's at that particular point in history because actually all the events are caused by the Doctor anyway. So right, you can you can relocate it anywhere. 
Indeed. Whereas I guess the reason I thought of the end of the world is that somehow that day that the world was finally ended would be like an actual historical event, right? It has some meaning outside the story. Yes, and also whilst in the fiction there's no reason why it should be different, externally you can't set it at the destruction of a planet that's not Earth or it just doesn't work. We are complete fools. Why? The waters of Mars. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I think we should just keep this in because, yeah, yeah. I think you just got to... Hang on. That entire story, which is about the Doctor in the future, but it hits the fixed point. And then, yeah. And then... Right. And the thing is, the, yeah. the reason I thought of that <laughs> is actually because in that story... Um, Ab- is it Abigail? Uh, the, the, the main Adelaide. Captain. Adelaide refers to the Dalek invasion of Earth in the previous season. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. oh, that's an example of a... Also, wait, the entire plot of that episode. Um, yes. So the Waters of Mars is an example, is an excellent example. The point, because the Waters of Mars is absolutely a historical story because the context of where they are in history informs the entire thing indelibly. Right. But... If you consider the fact that it is unequivocally not actually set in our history because it's set in the future, then the corollary to that is that being set in the past is not what defines being a historical. Yes, which actually I think almost it almost shatters my entire categorization because I think it's 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 remastering. Yes, yeah, so, entire... I mean I didn't I did I didn't want to say that, but I was sat there thinking like I'm about to say something that completely contradicts everything you're saying. No, I love it. I love it. This story then is set in the past and not a historical, but it's closely related to the awakening, which is set in the present and is a historical. Indeed. I mean, it's led to the Awakening in the sense that the malice in the Awakening is created by the Pteroleptals. I mean, yes, it's also directly plot continuity. Wait, hmm. Hang on. It is, because the Civil War, not the May Queen stuff, but the Civil War stuff in the Awakening is inextricable. Right, yeah, you would really struggle to... You, You can rewrite it to be about a different war, but you've still got to use a historical war. Well, do you? Yes, I think you do. I Yes, so. In the same way that you have to set the end of the world around the end of Earth and not the end of another planet, you can't use a fictional conflict in The Awakening or it doesn't work, even though in-universe it wouldn't be any different. Well, let, let me propose a different classification system then. Uh, you have okay. Doctor Who stories which are tied into time and Doctor Who stories that are tied into space. Now, they can be both, and I suppose technically they could be neither, but in the sense that you're defining historical as a story which is actually tied to time. No. No? Definitely not, because Mordrin in Dead is a story that is 100% set in time, not historical. Okay, fine. What I am saying is that a historical story is a story about human anthropology. Ha, huh, okay. So it has to be about humanity. You can't have a historical that's about the history of an alien species. You can do it, but you have to do it in an analogous way where we understand the alien historical import by likening it to our own understanding of our own history. And that's the same way in which The Waters of Mars works. 
we understand the future context of what's going on by considering it as if it were a moment in our past. Okay, right. I'm just going to run you down every single story we've looked at and you can tell them under, under this classification. If, it, if this is going to be a bit, it's got it's got to have like a, a funny little subtitle for this bit. Like, um, okay, right. Um, historical or not, but good. Historical but... or not? No, that's, that's terrible though. That's rubbish. Okay, we'll, we'll workshop that in pen. Um, History or mystery? Yeah, that'll do. That'll do. Now on Relative Digressions, it's time for History or Mystery. With your host, Renna Robson. Okay, we're going to do history or mystery. We're going to go through all the episodes we've looked at so far, and you're going to tell them under your idiosyncratic, I think it's safe to say, way of classifying historical, whether or not this counts. So, the time meddler. Uh, historical. Right, yeah. Doctor Who the movie. Historical. Yeah, okay, I agree. The mu- I, and remember that Doctor Who the movie was set in the future when it came out. Mm-hmm. The mutants. Almost a historical, not. <laughs> Time lash. Uh, celebrity historical. The Awakening. Historical. Genesis of the Daleks. Historical, but only because... Right, so, okay, the Genesis... We, we need to come back to that one. That one's convoluted. Okay, star on Genesis. The Happiness Patrol. Not historical. Um, the Mind Robber. Not historical, obviously. It's not even set in this universe. <laughs> That doesn't actually matter, I guess. Yeah, the five doctors. Because actually, Rise of the Cybermen is not set in this universe, but I, you could make an argument. Yeah, sorry, the five doctors not a historical. The Feast of Stephen. Not a historic. Oh, it's a pure contemporary. Grand. Okay. Is it, is it contemporary? Is it actually set in the time that the episode was set? Yeah, yeah, it is. Oh, great. Cool. Uh, the Leisure Hive. Not historical. The Invasion. Not historical. Terror of the Autons. Interestingly, Attack of the Cybermen is a historical, and the historical event is the invasion. Oh, I see what you mean. That's a Colin story, right? Yeah, by Eric Sayward. Huh, okay, cool. Uh, so did you did you answer for Terror of the Autons? Terror of the Autons, not historical. Okay, great. Okay, well that's that. Um... Yeah, but so Genesis of the Daleks is historical, and yet it does not require analogy to human history to work. So what's going on there? Well, what is going on there, to go back to my previous big, long, fancy thesis, you'll recall that I also said something bizarre about Genesis, which was that it wasn't about Nazis. Indeed. If it was about Nazis, then that would be the human analogy that isn't, in fact, there. Right. So how is it working? Well, it is working because it is a historical event that is contextualised by the mythos of the show, and Genesis, as we remarked upon extensively in that episode, or at least as I remarked upon extensively in that episode, is the point where the show has built up enough mythos that it can back-reference its own mythos. So the audience doesn't need to analogise it to human history because the audience is actually now enfranchised enough in a show that has developed enough that Doctor Who history is a thing that also exists, and Genesis is a historical event in that history. Right. 
like the time war, I guess is... Right, exactly, the time war. The time war is the epitome of historical. And you don't need to understand that within the context of human history. In fact, you can't, because it's the time war. It's beyond comprehension in that. But but you, you don't need to, because Doctor Who history is a tangible, understandable, audience-perceptible history in its own right for the event to exist in. That is the exception to needing to contextualise things within an Earth history. So, okay, you know what, you have actually persuaded me with your thesis. I came to this with a completely different perception. I do think the only objection I would have to your quite expansive definition of historical is that it might be a bit too expansive, that we lose some ability to mean specifically. I I would say the classic definition of a historical is something set in Earth's past. Right, but I am talking about a taxonomy of types of Doctor Who story. Right. And what we, in that context, what we want to do is understand the structure and purpose of the story, not understand an in-universe facet of it. Right. Got it. Got it. And there is a reason why this is particularly relevant, which is that the Doctor Who concept of history does not make any sense. Well, that is true, yes. This is more important than that response suggested. I mean, I, I guess I just sort of agree. Doctor Who will occasionally tell me that it has laws of time and I'll nod and accept it for that story, but we both know it's a lie. Right, but the reason I am drawing this distinction between in-universe versus out-of-universe and the relevant thing being actually the purpose of the story mm-hmm. is because it's the only way to make sense of what is actually a massive contradiction in Doctor Who, mm-hmm. which is that from the Doctor's point of view, all of it is history. Indeed, you could make an argument that the Doctor, in fact, has no solid conception of history because it's not like Gallifrey exists consistently in a point in time, right? No, that literally is actually how Gallifrey exists. Gallifrey has objective time. The Eye of Harmony maintains objective time on Gallifrey. That just means that Gallifrey has declared itself to be zero GMT and the rest of the universe is just going to have to bloody hurry up and... That is indeed exactly what Gallifrey has done. But the point is, from anyone else's perspective, this this, this is essentially unreasonable. It's relevant because if you leave Gallifrey and futz around in time for 10 hours and then go back to Gallifrey, you'll arrive 10 hours after you left. Oh, okay, cool. I mean, I I think that almost supports what I was originally saying, right? Which is that from a Gallifrey's point of view, it's not clear what they would consider history. Well, they consider everything history. It's the web of time. You're not meant to change any of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's the vital point. From the Gallifreyan point of view, which is as close as we get to an objective point of view, the Doctor should not be changing anything. Right. And yet, if we contrast the Aztecs and the Visitation, in the Aztecs, the entire conflict comes from the fact that because they are in history, inverted commas, Barbara must not change things. And here... The Doctor starts the Great Fire of London. Right. Why does he bother about changing the Aztecs, but not anything else he does? Right, exactly, exactly. Um, At least sometimes in, say, Father's Day, there's a specific reference to some kind of paradox. Yes, Father's Day doesn't explain everything, because you can't. But Father's Day does at least give a good explanation for a lot of it which is that things only go wrong when it's a paradox, otherwise it's You could make an argument that the Aztecs is a paradox because Barbara would not have taken the actions that she had if she hadn't learnt about the Aztecs as they do exist 
unfortunately, they never bring that up as a reason within the story. Well, indeed, but I feel like they might do if they were doing it in... But there, there are much more modern historicals... Which don't do it. The Fire of Pompeii, I suppose. And on the flip side, you have something like The Unquiet Dead, where Rose says, but the Gelf didn't inhabit the bodies of the dead as of the time of Charles Dickens. And the Doctor says, who's to say? Why not? Right, and that's interesting, actually, because, of course, that is the show being quite new, and Rose's audience surrogate going, well, hang on, have you not just changed history? And the Doctor going, no. Well, no, 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 the Doctor's going, yes, it's fine. Right, although I think the context of especially the Ninth Doctor, uh, is the fact that the Time Lords are no longer there. Yes. So actually, kind of when he says that, he's like... And he's... Yeah. Yeah. He's feeling out, out. And also, of course, the Gelf lost their bodies as a result of the Time War. So there is... He's possibly going further than he should because he is culpable for the Gelf being disembodied. Indeed, and also it's unclear if they lost those bodies in the context of the Time War, it really screwed with what history was, right? So actually, in a sense, there's a lot more leeway to change history because history is just utterly banjaxed. Yeah, so that's, that's my big thesis on historicals in Doctor Who. And all of this is really an effort to reconcile a core problem that was created in the Aztecs and which the show has wrestled with ever since which is that Doctor Who is very sure it believes in a thing called history, and it struggles an awful lot with the contradictions inherent in that category. Right. I, I, think, that's, I think it's a really interesting thesis. Um, I, I, and I don't think it's... Mark, ever, I, and notably, like, ten, um, the unearthly, an unearthly child and Marco Polo didn't create this problem, it, it, but, but the Aztecs, like, the whole concept of the Aztecs created this distinction, which the show has, like been obsessively trying to make sense of ever since but fundamentally cannot make sense of well it's interesting to think think about like the time meddler right like exactly what is the difference between okay yes kind of he's a bit more bumbly and he's direct about it but what is the distinction between the doctor and the time meddler and of course for the from the time lord's point of view probably not that much well exactly if you think about it there shouldn't be a difference yeah and this problem really inevitably traces back to the Aztecs and you can't rewrite history, not one line. Yep. And then you get here and the Doctor's burning down Pudding Lane and it doesn't matter because this is not a historical story. <laughs> right, I see. So Because Doctor Who believes in a thing called history, which has certain rules and implications, and it's not applying that category here, therefore the Doctor is allowed to set fire to Pudding Lane. I think it's deeper than that, right? Because it's actually saying, it's not saying he changed history. It's actually making a statement about what has always been the case about how the fire started in Pudding Lane in the Doctor Who universe. Yeah, I mean, actually, you're right in that respect that it almost doesn't matter because he's only a fait accompli in what already took place. And in fact, he argues that they shouldn't go and put the fire out. Right, exactly. He's saying we shouldn't let put the fire out because actually I've just discovered that I am history, which is interesting, right? Yeah, so, so maybe that final, final line, maybe the Doctor's final line is an historical line. Right. But it's also nothing to do with the plot and it's entirely like... Yeah, I think my argument would be, after what you said, that almost all of the story is not historical, but the Pudding Lane scene is a historical scene. Yeah. But the Pudding Lane scene is like a, not quite a non sequitur, but you can cut it and nothing changes, right? It's not actually part of the story. No, it, it is kind of a non sequitur. You could have made it less of one, but they, that is not the story that is written. Yeah. 
The fourth doctor mentions that he's been unfairly blamed for it, which is quite funny because then, like, in his next incarnation, you find out that it wasn't unfair at all. Yeah, that, 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 I like it when they do that kind of thing. It's quite hard to set up. Uh, that tidbit is something that Professor Watt added on the forums. I, I didn't actually pick up on that myself. Apparently, on the woman who lived, the 12th doctor blames the pterodactyls for the Great Fire of London, which I yes. think is. That's not quite true, though, is it? I mean, yeah, I did. they didn't start the fire. <laughs> They were always already burning, burning since the world... The world was... Yes. Um... The Black Death. 1348. I meant to warn you. I got sick, but I got better. Of course. Your immune system is learning, too. There's another bout coming. And a big fire that tears through London. Excellent. Maybe I started. No, that was the Terraleptals. All right, let's talk about the Terraleptals for a little bit. And, of course, their pal, the Disco Android. Our good friend, Grandmaster Flash. Disco Stew. DJ Jazzy Jeff. His design, and this is relevant, uh, the Terraleptals are, like, beauty is really relevant to them. That, that's how they think of stuff. So the Android has a really unique design. He doesn't look like a Terraleptal. He looks like a glam robot. He's all chiselled angles, kind of like a crystal, and he has a patterning that I always thought was based on a harlequin, but uh, I found out it's actually based on the outfit of an Indian prince. But it's it's nothing like the Terraleptals, who look, well, I actually thought they were lizards. I think they might be referred to by lizards in the thing. They're wizards in the script, Yeah, but the costumes are based on fish. Yeah, so we've come to the conclusion that they're like essentially mudskippers. They they clearly put a lot of effort into these things. They've got animatronic gills. They look great. Like honestly, they look really good. Yeah, the the one of them has scarring, which is really interesting, right? Because you have to create a design for the costume, and then you are essentially ruining that design. But you know, so there's an interesting point that somebody made in the forums. A user called Delta and the Bannerman points out that. It's a bit of an oversight that we see the leader with his scarring before we see what a normal Terraleptal looks like. I, I had actually thought this, that it is odd in that sense, that it almost decreases the impact of seeing him. Delta in the Bannerman also points out that the introduction of animatronics here works really well, and JNT wants to be on the cutting edge of that, but it does lead to Chameleon. Yes. Who, who does not work. Indeed. Um, do the Terraleptals ever show up again? They don't, and I have remarked to you before that I I want to bring them back. I want to bring my colourful fishy boys back to the show. They've been in some books and comics, but they're a bit of a joke in the fandom, and I don't think that's fair. They look cool. They're really colourful. The one thing they have in common with the robot is that they both have lots of bright colours. Yeah. Um, This idea of a warlike alien society, but which prizes aesthetics goes against the grain of the usual idea of, like, oh, warlike aliens who are savage and have no higher right, culture. Right, exactly. And I think it's interesting to deconstruct the way in which we as a culture, gender, warlike activity, and maybe... Mm. I'm not saying that you need to write the queer Terraleptal story, but I am saying that these rainbow fishy boys have more to say. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I think I, I would have gone more for a division that isn't gender-based, but is more about the way that war is a thing that happens elsewhere and the arts are a thing that happen at home and war should not happen at home, so a kind of never the twain shall mix. Uh-huh. So yeah, the key reason I think they're a good alien, and I think we've just demonstrated it, is that there is more going on. You could bring them back because they haven't been fully explored. Right. 
Maybe right now, Christopher Chibnall is working on the Terralepsal's glorious return. They're also an alien foe the Doctor can talk to, reason with, argue with. They've got a nuanced reason to be on Earth. They are interesting. I actually find the leader sympathetic. He's acting out of paranoia. Like the He doesn't want to conquer the planet. He wants to kill everyone because he's afraid. So he's actually acting out of trauma. Yeah. This carnage isn't necessary. It's survival, Doctor. Just as these primitives kill lesser species to protect themselves, so I kill them. That's hardly an argument. It's not supposed to be an argument. It's a statement. So, uh, do we have any final thoughts? I, I really like this story. I like this era. This isn't like scintillating set the world on fire, but I I think it's really fun. I think it's strange how often it's under-discussed, apart from the twist ending and occasionally the fact that the sonic screwdriver is destroyed here. Hmm. I, I was really surprised, actually, to find how polarising it was. I've mentioned a couple of the fan comments. Basically, you bounce between people who really loved it and people who really don't in a much more extreme way than I expected. So you go from Ark in Space, cripplingly shallow and lacking in ambition, to Doctor Q, Sayward's script is loaded with terrific dialogue scenes and set pieces. And then after a couple of thousand words on how much they liked it, the next follow-up is, it's sh- <laughs> I mean... And, th- and, th- and then the next one is, I love this story personally, and then don't enjoy it as much as I did. I think it's an outstanding story. I wouldn't really be surprised if halfway through the Doctor turned to his companion and said, I'm bored. So very polarising, and that surprised me. Yeah, and that wasn't really my reaction. I quite liked it. It was a jolly romp. When we did The Awakening, we specifically tried to pick one that was very self-contained. And we remarked then that it's quite difficult because they have these top-of-the-episode recaps of the last episode in a a soapy way. I quite like it, I have to say. I do too. I I wish Modern Who did more of it. Does it a bit sometimes? Yeah, we've talked several times about how there is a soap-like aspect to Doctor Who. Yes. I'll go one further. I think Doctor Who is strongest when it is leaning into some of those soapy aspects. Doesn't mean you can't also have high-concept sci-fi. I think you can have high-concept sci-fi soap, and I like Doctor Who when that's what it is. Right. I mean, high-concept sci-fi soap defines Dark Shadows, which I love. Uh, And actually, I, I think recently... The idea of a proper sort of cult genre fiction, science fiction show that is also proper soap is something that TV producers are kind of getting interested in the idea of. Yeah, I think the issue with doing it on Modern Who, almost I think you could do it because the the production required is fundamentally a different kind of craft and you don't have the option, which you did, especially back in the early kind of black and white days, right? Where they were filming stuff every week and actually that was almost very close to the way a soap is produced. But then now that is just not the case, you can't do that. No, you probably can't. There's all kinds of production issues where Doctor Who itself can't produce in that way. I mean, Torchwood is more of a soapy kind of affair, which has a soapy, a more soapy kind of production. Yeah, and that is a more fixed soap sitcom Sitcom's another good touchstone for the Davison era, I think. Yes. You know, with these opening scenes, I mean, literally Nyssa spends it in her bedroom. They have a bedroom mm. and they have conversations in their rooms and you have Adric 
as the precocious younger brother, the doctor is a put-upon single father. It feels like one of those all-in-the-family right. 2.4 children <laughs> I, familial sitcoms, I, right? I'm just imagining the... Like, Doctor looks camera, thumbs up, Peter Davidson. It's, it's, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a sitcom about a single dad being bullied by his three adoptive precocious kids who are like orphans. It, oh, God, it's like the sitcom from BoJack Horseman, isn't it? I think so. I haven't actually seen BoJack Horseman, but that is my recollection of it. And actually talking of BoJack Horseman, which is a sitcom itself with a very dark edge to it. What you end up with here is what should be a light, fluffy, all-in-the-family sitcom era of Doctor Who except that it's been edited by Eric Sayward. So someone took a sitcom about a single dad being bullied by his kids and then rewrote it so that everybody dies at the end of every episode. Right. Um, which creates a certain je ne sais quoi. Yeah, it is really odd that there is something almost homely about Davison. Some people find him bland. I think that's wrong, very wrong. But there is something homely, familial, cosy about him even though he's actually in like one of the darkest, most bloodthirsty eras of the show. I really like the fifth Doctor as single dad, you know. That is a really nice way of viewing <laughs> But But I think you're right that there's something fatherly about him in a way that Doctor doesn't actually always do that much. Yeah, like you could literally imagine the fifth Doctor basically as a guy who goes around the universe adopting orphans. I mean, that is what he, he is. is. That's literally what he is. Right. Uh, whereas Do the Doctor's often avuncular or grandfatherly, but he's... Yeah, avuncular or professorial are much more common than paternal. Right, exactly. Uh, I suppose the obvious comparison point is Pertree as a paternalistic figure, but... Without spoiling anything, I promise, don't worry, the idea of a jolly sitcom that then takes on a sci-fi spin is obviously something that has just been done for intentional purposes in WandaVision to great success. And I'm not saying that the Davison era is the precursor to that. You're not not saying it. But it does have some of the same element. Right, okay. The same frisson. So if you want to take one thing from this episode, other than a long thesis about Doctor Who historicals, uh, you should take that uh, WandaVision is actually a rip-off of Peter Davison's Doctor the Who. The Peter Davison era Doctor Who. Right, okay. Cool. Well, That's what I'm saying. Providing the hot and um, well-considered takes here on relative digressions. Okay, it's been a while, but next time we are going to revisit Sylvester McCoy in Battlefield. I'm pretty excited. A story which we did pick up on slightly the last time we talked about him. Super. I'm super excited. Any final thoughts? Well, I, I mean, talking about the way that the Doctor is ultimately revealed to be culpable for this curveball final moment, uh, I guess that would make him a twisted fire starter. It's a reference to a famous song. Yeah, yeah I, got it, I got it. I got it. I don't know who the prodigy are, but... They're, well, they're a band that made a famous yeah, song well, called I, Firestarter. Yeah, I know the, I know the song. I, okay, quite well, okay. Goodbye. Bye. Because it's, yeah. it's a twist, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah. He's a twisted yeah, twist, Firestarter. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right, you done. He's a Firestarter. Yeah, yeah, okay. I've got another one if you prefer. No, I mean... I... What, what's a te what, what's a Terraleptal's favourite book? I don't know. What is a Terraleptal's favourite book? The Art of War. Because the two things yeah, are the name I of get, I get, I get, you don't need to...
for listening to Relative Digressions. You can find us on Twitter at Who Digressions. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S-O-N-N-I-K, and this is a production by Renna Robson and Felicia Parker. We'll be back in the future. Uh, I've actually just realised that you, uh, given the segment was called History or Mystery, you should have been answering mystery to the ones that weren't. Um, Damn. But shall we, shall we do it again? No.